That uh, was from our Get Drenched gathering a few weeks ago, and uh, if you were not here then, uh, that is just a small snapshot of uh, what God did uh, a few weeks ago, and it was always encouraging uh, just to see uh, 17 men and women uh, publicly say, hey, I'm not just a fan of Jesus, I actually want to follow Jesus, and they made that uh, decision uh, through baptism. And so to me, that's just a reminder that God's at work uh, in people's lives, He's at work in this community, and when we gather like this on a Sunday morning, hopefully it is a reminder to all of us here that uh, God is doing things in people's lives, and I love on Sundays... Uh, all of us are in different places. We all have different stories. We all have different scenarios and situations happening right now. Uh, but God is at work in each of those things. And I believe that God has something specifically for each of you this morning, whether it's just to challenge you, to encourage you, to inspire you, to comfort, maybe just to answer a question that you've been asking for a while. Uh, my name is Michael. I serve as one of the pastors and super thankful that you're taking time on a Sunday morning to be here. Uh, one of the things that I love is I love watching movies. I love watching all sorts of movies, but if I am not watching either Rocky or Gladiator or Braveheart, uh, some of those epic type of films, uh, films that I honestly most enjoy watching are usually films that involve some type of courtroom drama, uh, movies based on different trials. And I think what I love about the process of a trial is just kind of learning about the case and learning the backstory of the people's lives involved in that case and uh, specifically love the drama that comes in a courtroom. Now, some of these films are a little bit older, but uh, Aaron Brockovich, Julie Roberts, that was a great film based on a courtroom drama. Or A Time to Kill, which was uh, with Matthew McConaughey, a book based on John Grisham. Or uh, another great courtroom drama movie, actually, that was based on the city of Woburn and water that was toxic here. Uh, John Travolta played a lawyer uh, in a movie called The Civil Action. And who could not absolutely love one of the greatest courtroom dramas, My Cousin Vinny? Anyone? Yes? Okay, that was a great one. But I think, hands down, probably my favorite courtroom film is a film back in the early 90s called A Few Good Men. Now, A Few Good Men, this is like early, early Tom Cruise, and this is Jack Nicholson at his prime. And if you've seen the movie, you'll never forget the scene where Jack Nicholson is on trial. He's in court, and he screams to Tom Cruise, the prosecutor. He says, you want the truth? And Tom Cruise screams back, I think we're entitled to the truth. And then Jack Nicholson screams back, all right, see, you guys do watch movies. That's good. Um, there's something about the drama that takes place uh, in a courtroom scene where you just, you want to see the guilty parties brought to justice um, or brought justice and just the innocent men and women uh, are also vindicated. Now, Clearly, it is absolutely entertaining to watch Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise go at it in the courtroom, but Imagine a film where a disgruntled humanity decided to actually put God on trial. And the trial, the accusation that humanity had against God was that God had abandoned them, that God ultimately no longer cared uh, about them. Now, sadly, this isn't just maybe a, a great idea for a modern-day film, 
This is actually a film that took place roughly 3,500 years ago uh, in the story of Exodus chapter 17. Now, before we look at a community of people that put God on trial, accusing Him of abandonment, I wanted to ask you this question. What would you need to see from God in order, in order to fully trust God in all things at all times? Like, What would you need to see in order to be able to declare to yourself, I can fully trust God no matter what, in all things at all times, I can absolutely trust God. Would you maybe need to see like God do a few miracles in your life? Would you maybe need to see God's presence in like an overwhelming way in your life? Or maybe would you need to see God's provision, like He just provides again and again and again whatever the needs might be? What would you need to see? Because what's fascinating to me is that the very people who put God on trial in Exodus chapter 17, accusing Him of abandonment, had actually seen all of these things and so much more. It's a community of people who had seen God do the miraculous again and again and again. It's a community of people who had seen God's presence, overwhelming presence with them throughout their journey. And it's a community of people that had seen God provide for them over and over and over, but yet it's this community of people that decided in Acts 17 to put God on trial. So this is Exodus 17, verse 7. This is Moses speaking, but he says this, Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Now, the people of God in this story here are arguing and quarreling with Moses, ultimately with God. But the people of God do something that they hadn't done before. They actually put God on trial. Now, the word test here in Hebrew is a term that is used for covenant lawsuit, meaning they are bringing God to a lawsuit against God for breaking his covenant with them. The accusation is you've left us and you no longer care about us. You have broken the covenant. Therefore, we're bringing a lawsuit against you. We're putting God on trial. Now, you wonder how many times would God need to actually prove himself to these people. Because if you look back at their story, he rescued them from Egypt. He delivered them in the most miraculous way through the Red Sea. He had traveled with them in the desert, meaning his presence, the the pillar of cloud at, at, at day and the pillar of fire at night. He made bitter water sweet for them to drink. He was now providing every single day food from heaven, manna from heaven. And he was also giving them plenty of meat. So what else would these people need to see in their life in order to trust and believe that God was with them and God was actually for them? I don't know. It's easy to kind of look down on these people and think, my goodness, what is wrong with you? Like, how could you possibly be doubting God and actually be putting God on trial in light of everything that He has already done for you? The miracles, His provision, His presence, what on earth is wrong with you? But the reality is, when we look down on judgment on them, 
for not trusting, for not believing, for just doubting, what we're ultimately doing is putting judgment on ourselves because we often do the exact same thing that these people do. And so this is how the case unfolded in Exodus 17. Go back and read verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. Now, Rephidim here in the desert, this is the last stop uh, for the people of God before they arrive at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai in the Old Testament is just simply known as the mountain of God. This is the, the very place where God actually appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So we see, though, that God is leading his people from place to place to place, but now the place that God has actually led them is a place that has no water. And as I've shared with you in weeks past, God often uses the desert. He uses the the trials and the storms and the hardship to actually grow us. Now, clearly, being in the desert and the trials and the storms that they were going through and certainly that we will go through, uh, they're not easy, but they do present us with a unique opportunity. When in the desert, like they were or like we might be, the storms and the trials, the opportunity for us is to either become very bitter and complain or to use that opportunity to actually say, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to believe God in this moment. And so we see in Exodus 17, the people of God have another opportunity. Will we complain? Will we grumble? Will we argue? Or will we just choose to trust and believe that God is God and that God has us? Well, in verse 2 and 3, we get how they responded to the opportunity before them. Verse 3 says, uh, or yeah, verse 3 says this, or verse 2 and 3. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue or quarrel with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt, are you trying to kill us, our children, our livestock, with thirst? Now, this is the fourth time in their journeys where they have taken an opportunity where they could have trusted, and they used that opportunity four times over to complain and to grumble against God. But in this story here in Exodus 17, it's a whole new level of anger that they begin to argue and quarrel with Moses, and they make a demand, give us water. Now, there is a tremendous difference between asking and waiting on God and demanding that something be done. And they were doing the latter. They were demanding that this must be done right now. Now, the truth is that we repeat that exact same sin when we demand that God work on our in our way, on our timelines to accomplish ultimately what we'd want when we want it. But not only are the people of God making a demand on God, they're also now choosing once again to believe the worst about God's intentions towards them. Do you notice the question that they asked Moses? Why did you bring us out here to kill us? Like, why couldn't we have just stayed in our bondage in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here? Are you trying to kill us? Again, we mimic that 
same sin when we begin thinking to ourselves, accusing God of not caring or accusing God of not having our good in mind when we are going through that desert or that storm or that trial. Now, essentially, the people thought, hey, we're just complaining and we're quarreling and arguing with Moses, but Moses makes crystal clear to them that their complaints, their quarreling are ultimately directed towards God. The people of God had become very familiar with complaining. That's their first response. When things got hard, they complained, and now they're complaining and ultimately arguing with God. But here, Moses informs them that what they are doing is far more serious than just issuing a complaint. They are doing something even worse. Moses asks the question, why are you testing God? Like, why are you testing the Lord right now? And again, Moses is asking them, why are you putting God on trial? Remember that word for test in Hebrew is covenant lawsuit. Why are you accusing God and putting him on trial for breaking covenant with you that he's no longer here and no longer cares? The people began to believe God's clearly abandoned us and God clearly does not care about us. I just can't help but wonder if the people would have just taken some time to remember all that God had actually already done. If they would have just taken a moment before complaining and then quarreling, ultimately testing or putting God on trial, just to just think for a moment, gosh, but we have seen God do this. We have seen the miracles. We've seen His presence. We have seen actually God's provision. And they didn't do that. Now, this might be a very obvious observation to make, but I think one of the tragic side effects of people who've been in the desert or people who've gone through trials or people who've gone through storms, I think a tragic side effect is what you just simply call spiritual amnesia. I don't know if you've suffered from spiritual amnesia before, but it's that condition where you just seem to forget who God is and all that God has done when things get hard. That's what spiritual amnesia is, is you just quickly forget what God is, who God is, what God is like, and all that God has done when things get hard. And I think the main problem is that when we forget all that God has done, aka spiritual amnesia, I think what we do is the exact same thing that the Israelites did. They began to test God or to put God on trial. Now, I'm very thankful that there was at least one person in the community who was not suffering from spiritual amnesia, and his name was Moses. And I love how Moses responded to the people complaining and to the people arguing and quarreling with him, ultimately with God. It says this in Exodus 17, verse 4. This is Moses' response. Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. What should I do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. What I love about Moses' response is rather than complain, he takes that opportunity to actually begin crying out to God. You can hear the frustration coupled with fear actually in Moses' crying out to God. It's been a difficult few months of leading a community of people who are ultimately just complaining against him and against God, but now they're ready to stone him. They're thinking that Moses has ultimately led them from Egypt into the desert to commit some mass genocide. 
And I think the people's thoughts are, hey, if we're all going to die, Moses, you definitely should be the first one to go because this is ultimately your fault. So Moses, clearly frustrated, clearly fearful of what the people wanted to do for him, uh, do to him. But I think Moses in this story models really well for all of us what we should do in situations where fear is present and when frustration is our reality. He simply cried out to God. And this is the beauty of when someone begins crying out to God, that moves the heart of God. When someone begins crying out to God, God moves, God acts, God responds. But as you walk through the story of Scripture, I can't find one instance where someone who was complaining moved the heart of God, but crying out to God always does. And this is how God responded to Moses crying out to him in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used uh, when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. Now, if you're the people of God, the nation of Israel, and this is what is now happening in verse 5, you'd be a little scared. You'd be a little freaked out because right now things just got really serious. Moses was told specifically to do three things that are now indicating, hey, court is about to be in session. The first thing that he tells Moses to do is walk in front of the people. This is to signify that Moses has been with God, he's heard from God, and he's about to give God's verdict, God's judgment in response to the people testing him or putting God on trial. The second thing that God tells Moses is take your staff with you. Now, when the people see Moses with his staff, they would know that judgment is forthcoming. And they would know that judgment is forthcoming because they last saw the staff when Moses used it at the Nile River to bring God's judgment down on Pharaoh and Egypt. So when they see Moses now walking with that same staff in his hand, they would certainly be thinking to themselves, clearly we are now next, that the judgment of God is coming upon us. But then he also tells Moses, I want you to have some other elders join you in the courtroom scene here, as it were. People would be thinking, well, this can't be good because it's no longer just Moses. Moses has gathered all the other elders of this community to be present in the courtroom. So the stage has been set. The courtroom is now in session. I think the only question that ultimately remains is what verdict will God render? What judgment will God bring down on the people for testing him? for accusing him of breaking covenant with them. Remember, the accusation of, are you with us or are you not? Are you God or are you not God? I think what God does next is nothing short of mind-blowing. This is in verse 6 of Exodus 7. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. People had tested and tried God for breaking covenant. Are you with us or are you not? So God makes very clear in his response, I am very present with you. But what I don't want anyone to miss is the very specific location that God says he is. I want you to notice God's not like in front of the rock. He's not behind the rock. He's not to the left of the rock. He's not to the right of the rock. Moses makes very clear, God says, I will be standing on the rock. So God is on the rock. And so the big question, why is God standing on the rock? 
Why is not behind to the left to the right? Why is God standing on the rock? Well, in short, God's about to do the unthinkable for his people. In verse 6, strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. There's two miracles at play. Number one is just the miracle of water coming from the rock. This is, again, God's gracious provision in the most miraculous way. And just so we know, we're not talking about water from a rock that was enough to maybe uh, fill up a water bottle or two. When the psalmist actually recalls what God did here in the desert when Moses struck the rock, this is what he says. Psalm 105, he split open a rock, water gushed out to form a river through the dry wasteland, enough to two million people to drink. Again, another demonstration of God's power, but also a clear demonstration of God's presence. But the second miracle at play here, and certainly even the greater miracle at play, is this, God stood in their place. In this moment, this is a picture of God standing in their place. The people that deserved the judgment, God took the judgment for them. The judgment for testing God, for putting God on trial, this is the judgment that God took upon himself. I want you to catch the language. When God tells Moses to strike the rock, God is telling Moses, strike God so that the judgment would fall upon him rather than fall upon the people that he actually cares deeply about. What happened on the rock, this is a picture of and certainly a pointer to the cross of Christ. Now, if you fast forward into the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is reflecting on God on trial in Exodus 17, and he's thinking about this amazing picture of what God did and standing on the rock, having the rock actually struck. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Paul was not at all confused as to who, what this rock was, that the rock that when Moses strikes He strikes the rock. He knows that the rock being struck is a picture here of Jesus taking the judgment upon himself, the judgment that was ultimately reserved for those people. And so when the rock is struck in the desert, love the picture. Water flowed in abundance so that everyone would be well nourished. And I love the picture that when Christ is struck for us on the cross, taking on himself God's full judgment for the sins of the world, for the sins of humanity. You want to know what happened? Water once again flowed. This picture in John 7, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. I love the language. Anyone. Not just some, but anyone who comes to me, anyone who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from him to us. So in reading Exodus 17, along with the words of Paul and the words of Jesus, you and I have the opportunity to believe 
that God is the provider in every way, every day. This is the opportunity before us. We have the opportunity to simply believe that God is the provider in every way, every day. God has not, nor will he ever withhold his good from you. We see that God provides our daily needs, but he also provides for our spiritual needs. And I think the one question that God was asking of them in Exodus 17, I think is the same question that God is asking us today in light of what we see in Exodus 17. And the question is simply this, will you trust me? Will you trust me to provide Will you trust me in my presence, in your life? And will you trust me to protect? God is asking them, asking us, will you trust me? Will you trust my provision, my protection, and my presence? And I want to make this as practical for each of us here in 21st century in the lives that we are living. What God is asking us is simply Will you trust me with your marriage? Will you trust me with your singleness? Will you trust me with your children? Will you trust me with the season of waiting that you might be in? Will you trust me with your finances? Will you trust me with the decisions and directions that you feel the weight that you need to make right now? Will you trust me with your future? God's asking, will you even trust me with your past, your past pains, your past hurts, your past frustrations, and your disappointments? But God is asking for each of us, will we trust that he is our provider in every way, every single day? The Psalms write a lot about Exodus 17, and specifically God on trial. And one of the psalmists in Psalm 95 gives his people, but also gives us a warning of what not to do in response to what God has done. It says this in Psalm 95, the Lord says, Don't harden your hearts as Israel did at Meribah, as they did at Massah in the wilderness. For there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw everything I did. The challenge was, do not harden your hearts. God's invitation is, will you trust me in all things, in all times? 